Beloved, in 1923, a professor of agricultural science at Tokyo University by the name of Yuzabero Yuno adopted a dog, an Akita dog, a Japanese Akita. He named him Hachiko, and the two of them became inseparable. Isaburo was a widower. He lived by himself. So for the beginning of their lives together uh, with the dog, as he adopted him, they became inseparable. They developed a routine that every morning when Isaburo would walk to the train station, the Shibuya train station in central Tokyo, Hachiko would accompany him and then go home. And then every afternoon, Hachiko would go to the train station and wait by the exit for his master to return. On May 21st, 1925, Hachiko went, as was his custom, to the train station in the afternoon, but he waited in vain because what had happened was Yuzabero had passed away. He had an unexpected sudden cerebral hemorrhage that took his life on the spot. Uh, the dog, Hachiko, was adopted by a former gardener of the Ueno family, and he lived with him. And what was fascinating was the dog continued the practice. Every afternoon, he would go to the Shibuya train station and wait at the exit for his master. Sometimes, the account says, even for hours at a time, patiently waiting for the return of his beloved owner. In 1932, a Japanese newspaper published the story of Hachiko. He became a celebrity over all of Japan. And in fact, the story went beyond that to the world. And people would come and visit the Shibuya train station and even give the dog treats. Over time, the Japanese people began calling him Chuken Hachiko, which means Hachiko the faithful. And the story of this faithful dog inspired people. Several movies were made of him, even movies in America. In 1934, while Hachiko was still alive, a bronze statue was dedicated at the Shibuya train station. And it stands to this day. People, especially young Japanese people, still visit that statue. There's a huge mosaic artwork on the wall in the train station commemorating this faithful jod. Hachiko. Beloved, as I was thinking of this, this is a good picture. It's a good illustration, in a sense, of every Christian. All believers should have this kind of undistracted devotion that Hachiko had for his master, even when his master wasn't there. Every believer, man or woman, married or single, should say in our hearts, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come, quickly. Every believer awaits his return and lives with eternity before us. Beloved, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're taking a two-part break, a two-part sojourn from our walk through Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul, under the direction and the superintending of the Holy Spirit, gives tremendous words about marriage, words of encouragement to wives. Next week, we'll pick up his words of encouragement and exhortation to husbands. And we have a two-part series, this is part two, of taking a look at what God has to say to singles in Christ from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
Beloved, I'm going to read four sections in this chapter, beginning in verse 7. Follow along as I read the Word of God in your hearing. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, draw your eyes down to verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. And now go down to verse 25, which begins the latter two sections, which will be our text this morning. Verse 25, Paul writes, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And finally, verse 32 through 35. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, we looked at last week, and we opened this up by saying that what we have the Apostle Paul giving us here in 1 Corinthians 7 is the provision and the blessing of singleness. The first two sections we looked at last week were the provision of singleness from the Lord, the gift of singleness to the Lord. These latter two sections will look at the blessing of singleness, the goodness of singleness. Now, if you're a visitor here this morning, we are blessed and so encouraged that you're here with us. Our normal practice is we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage. But as we are doing that in Ephesians with the exhortation, as I indicated even before, to husbands and wives, we want to have this special topical two-part series, two singles. That's why we're taking these sections from 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Last week, as we were looking at the provision, the gift of singleness, we saw the gift defined and the gift displayed. The gift defined in verses 7 through 9. And simply, when we look at the gift in verse 7, we understand that according to the plain authorial intent of Paul in the text, that this gift is providential, not supernatural. 
When we think of the gifts of the Lord in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts of leadership in Ephesians 4, the singular giftedness that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 4, that the kind of brunt behind those treatments is that it's a supernatural gift to the Lord. The gift, the way in which Paul uses the gift, and actually there are two gifts he's describing here in verse 7, is more providential rather than supernatural. And Paul's point here is both singleness and marriage are gifts from the Lord. Every believer has one of these two gifts because even though Facebook, I understand, may have a status called complicated, before the Lord, if you're a Christian, you are either single or you are married. And God tells us through Paul that each of those is a gift from the Lord. Now, if you have the gift of marriage, it's for life. Unto death do us part. If you have the gift of singleness, it may be for life or it may be temporary. And beloved, we are reminded that the pursuit of every Christian, whether the Christian with the gift of singleness or with the gift of marriage, our pursuit is holiness, not happiness. In the same way, if you're a single believer here this morning and you would love to be married and you're walking with the Lord and we can trust that the desire that you have to be married is from the Lord because you are delighting yourself in his revealed will, even there your pursuit is still holiness, it's not wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-S-S. You are trusting in the Lord that he will take care of the wholeness. You may have things to do and responsibilities on your own, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but again, the pursuit is holiness, not wholeness. And that is the gift defined. The gift is displayed. Now, while the gift is providential, the gift of singleness in what we're talking about here, God does supernaturally give the man of God or the woman of God control and contentment to display the gift as faithful stewards, whether it's a temporary gift or whether it's a permanent gift. As long as you have it, God gives you supernaturally through the might and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit the ability to display his goodness and this providence through your trust in him. One more reminder. When someone has the gift, even if we kind of understand the giftedness here in the context of the horizontal level, the human level, even if somebody like myself who has no desire to be married, I was blessed to be married once for almost 28 years, the gift of singleness, even in a more permanent state, does not mean that the man or woman has no desire for intimacy and companionship. It does mean that there's no desire for marriage, and it means that by God's grace and mercy, he or she doesn't burn with uncontrolled desire. And even if it's a temporary gift in terms of having a desire to be marriage, God gives that contentment and that control over that in the man or the woman that is walking with God. Well, that is a short, high-level summary of what we saw last week in verses 7 through 9 and verse 17. This morning, we'll look at the blessing of singleness, the goodness 
of singleness in the latter two sections. And beloved, we understand that the gifts of the Lord, the 19 or 20 gifts of the Lord in the Romans and 1 Corinthians passages I mentioned before, it's a reminder that whether they're the supernatural gifts or the providential gifts that God is speaking of here in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7, it is about what the gifts of the Lord do to us and for us and through us. For his glory, for your joy, for the blessing of his children, and for a witness to a lost and dying world. Well, beloved, as we look at this, we'll see two blessings of singleness that are elaborated here. Freedom and focus. Freedom and focus. Freedom in the first section and focus in the second section. Now, having said that, there's not a sharp bifurcation. There's not a sharp division. Both freedom and focus bleed into these two sections, but in the first section, it's a little more geared towards freedom, and in the latter, it's a little more geared towards focus. And beloved, this is the bright light of Paul's pastoral realism that is shining out of the murky quagmire bog of confusion, error, and sin that is in the world and can even creep into the thinking of believers. We are reminded, I said this last week, that in Christ, singleness is not a problem. It's a provision. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's certainly not a disease. It's a design. It's God's good design for your life. Again, it may be temporary or it may be permanent, but if you are single in Christ, it's God's design for your life right here, right now. And may all of you experience, all of you single men and women experience the fullest measure of the joy of singleness with a biblical theology of singleness. So again, freedom and focus. You are free from distraction Beloved, which enables you to focus on devotion to the Lord. Let's look at the first blessing, freedom, namely that you are in Christ when walking with Christ. You are free from distraction. Chukin Hachiko, Hachiko the faithful, he had this undistracted devotion. And beloved, the point here from Paul is that singles are better able to focus and be devoted to God without distraction in a way that is an advantage, that is a benefit above our beloved brothers and sisters who are married. All believers have this undistracted devotion, but singles have a particular blessing to be able to do that in a unique way. That's why in verse 25 he begins, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. Let's unpack that just a tiny bit. First, when we look at this epic chapter of 1 Corinthians 7. I mean, there is tremendous wisdom here about relationships and marriage and widowhood and divorce and virgins and even touches on other aspects, circumcision and employment and possessions, many others as well. Paul, the Apostle Paul, did not start with a blank slate to write a systematic treatise on marriage, divorce, widowhood, and singlehood. Rather, he's responding to specific questions that he has received from the Corinthian church, and it's marked by this little two-word phrase, now concerning. So if you look at verse 1 here in the chapter, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
And then again in verse 25, now concerning virgins. So each of these places, also chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 16, verses 1 and 12, you see the phrase now concerning, which tells you that the Apostle Paul is addressing a specific question that he received from the Corinthian church. So he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. So we need to make sure we understand this as well. When he says, I give an opinion, he doesn't mean that this is optional. This isn't a take it or leave it portion of scripture. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that he doesn't have, he's not aware of any direct teaching or command from Christ on this subject. Uh, Elsewhere, even in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul will make a distinction between quoting from the Word of God, the Old Testament, or quoting from Christ or citing Christ in something that is new revelation to him. At the same time, Paul understands that he is an apostle of God. That's how he begins this letter. So this is still the Word of God. It has the full weight of the rest of the Word of God. It has the full authority of the rest of the Word of God. And it has the full binding nature of what God demands upon believers as well. When he says, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion, that's why he finishes out verse 25, as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. It is by the mercy of the Lord that Paul is trustworthy and these words of exhortation and demand that he gives to believers are binding. But then verse 26, here's where he gets to the point. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. And in case we just missed it, he repeats that it is good for a man to remain as he is. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is it is good to be single in Christ. It is good to be unmarried. And he's already said this twice. He said it back in verse 1 and he said it again in verse 8. In verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them to remain even as I. So the Apostle Paul wants all believers, married believers and single believers, to understand that being single in Christ is good. Is good. Now, it's interesting that he says, in this present, in the present distress. There are endless theories, or seemingly endless theories, on what the present distress might mean. Some people think it might have rela- re, uh, referred to a famine. Others think it might have been the persecution that was building up against Christians along the lines of even the evil emperor, uh, evil Roman emperor Nero, and the tremendous persecution that came from that. But beloved, in the end, for them, and especially for us, it doesn't matter precisely what the present distress was. The point here is, and he wants everyone to understand that life on this side of eternity, life on this side of glory, is this present misery, the present distress. And what he's saying is because of that, it is good for a man, for a woman, for a virgin to remain as he is or as she is. The commentator Leon Morris, I like the way he illustrated it. He said, when the high seas are rising, it's no time to change ships. That's the marrow behind what the Apostle Paul is bringing here. He's basically saying this is God's wisdom for those who can bear it. As I was 
working through this and meditating upon this, I was reminded of five young pastors that were martyred for their faith in 15th century, excuse me, 16th century France. These five young pastors wrote to one of their former seminary professors, one of their former seminary teachers, and they said these words. We're bold to say and affirm we shall derive more profit in this school of suffering for our salvation than has ever been the case anywhere we've studied. We testify this persecution and prison is the true school of the children of God in which they learn more than the disciples or the philosophers ever did in their universities. And then they wrapped it up with this powerful closing sentence. Indeed, it mustn't be imagined one can ever have a true understanding of many passages of Scripture without first having been instructed by the teacher of all truth in this college of suffering, end quote. These were men that gave their lives for the gospel. Beloved, the present distress, what Paul is saying is, if you can bear it, it is better to remain as you are. John Bunyan, the great allegorical Puritan writer, said that God keeps the earth from stinking by sprinkling it with suffering saints. If I can kind of get personal in this, I have often shared and often thanked the Lord, and I've told my children this and they understand this, I have often thanked the Lord that he took my beloved Margie home to be with him instead of me so that she would not have to suffer the agony of the longing. And it's, not a, it's not a loneliness for companionship. It's a longing for my beloved Margie. And my children know this. I have often thanked the Lord that he took my beloved Margie home rather than me so that she wouldn't have to suffer the longing. Beloved, Bunyan understood well that behind the frown of God's providence hides the smile of God. That is what gives the strength behind Paul's statement here. These words of encouragement, the reminder, the statement that your singleness is a blessing from God to you. It's God's gift to you, again, right here, right now. And Paul, though, as just the wonderful pastor, has great balance when it comes to his ministry. Verse 27, he says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. In other words, if you're married, even if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, you cannot divorce her or him, in the case of a woman, for that reason. And are you released from a wife? So what he's saying there is earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that if a person has an unbelieving spouse that deserts him, that person, that man or that woman is no longer bound. He or she would be free to be remarried if their unbelieving spouse deserted them. And that might be what he's talking about here. It might be a believing husband, at least in the example of the end of verse 27, that had an unbelieving wife that deserted him. Are you least from a wife? Stay that way. Stay single. Now, beloved, the backdrop is this. We understand in the 21st century, and there's nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun, that the world denigrates marriage and deifies singleness. And we recognize that. At the same time, even in Bible-teaching churches, even in, among Bible-believing Christians, there can be a tendency to deify marriage and to denigrate singleness. 
But the perfectly balanced wisdom of God coming through Paul here removes the possibility of deifying either singleness or marriage or denigrating either singleness or marriage. Paul continues verse 28. But if you should marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she's not sinned. You're a single man. I just said in verse 27, it's good for you to remain as you are, but so that we don't take that and over-amplify it or have a misunderstanding. If you do marry, of course, in the Lord, you haven't sinned if you're a man or a woman. Yet, at, at the end, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. This is an extension of the present distress we saw before. Literally, yet such will have tribulation in the flesh. Tribulation, the same word that we see of the great tribulation in the book of Revelation. The word which would talk about an olive press or a grape grape press of stones grinding together the tribulation of life. What Paul is saying here is on this side of eternity, marriage can bring trouble. You see, when you're living alone, there's only one person who sins in the house. I'm actually empty nester V2.0. My youngest son, Jaden, went and he has an apartment in Tempe that he moved into a month or two ago in preparation of GCU. So right now, an empty nester V2.0, 1.0 got interrupted by COVID and the reaction to it, but (laughs) be that as it may. But right now, there's only one person in my house who sins. You see, but when you get married, now there's two people who sin in the house. And if you're young married, all of a sudden you start bringing home those pink and blue bundles of depravity and sin just abounds. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. And he's saying, I'm trying to spare you this trouble again. This is the wisdom of God if you can bear it. And again, as you're walking with the Lord, what is God laying in your heart? I said from the pulpit a few years ago, after my beloved Margie went home, and I'll say it again here as well, is that in terms of whether or not, if you're widowed, whether or not you marry or remarry, I don't want to be the standard of anything. Uh, We know from Hebrews 13, verse 7, that the believers are told to imitate the faith and the life of their godly leaders. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. But in terms of whether or not a widow or a widower gets married again, don't, don't look at me. That is up to the individual Christian as you walk with the Lord, as you're delighting yourself in the law of the Lord, in the revealed word of God. What is God putting in your heart? That's the issue. That's the question. Well, back in terms of our thread here, the commentator Paul Salehammer said, the only thing worse than waiting is wishing you had. And the point there is that marry in the Lord and be wise. See what God is doing in your heart. You can't unscramble eggs. And marriage can create more problems than it solves if you're not walking in Christ. And last week I said something along the lines that if you're single, don't look at marriage as the solution to your trouble. If you're viewing marriage as the solution to your sin, as the solution to your trouble, it'll be the multiplication of your trouble. If you get married, all it's going to do is magnify trouble so that somebody else also has to live with it. Beloved, glorifying God is not found in changing your condition. For the 
godly single walking with the Lord or any condition that he brings out here, married, single, or anything else, glorifying God is found within your condition. That's one of the points of 1 Corinthians 7 is however you were when God saved you, that's your mission field, or at least is for that time. And live your life according to your giftedness, whether single or married. Well, that's the end of looking at the blessing of God in this way, this blessing of God. Now, we'll move on to verses 32 through 35. Before we do that, just some quick words on verses 29 through 31. What the Apostle Paul brings out in verses 29 through 31 as we transition is that the world is passing away. Eternity for the married or for the singles is the more pressing concern than the affairs of time. And both married and singles are to live with an eternal perspective. You see, beloved, our world is like a Hollywood set. It has a front, but there's no back. And it'll be folded up and put away. And when the curtain falls, everything is swept away, is what Paul reminds all believers of in verses 29 through 31. And we understand that as new creatures in Christ Jesus, as believing singles or believing married, we minimize what the world maximizes. And by God's grace and mercy, we maximize what the world minimizes and we allow eternity to be the jurisdiction in which we deal with all affairs of life including marriage and singleness and this means we have things but things don't have us that means we receive God's blessing but through the governing of the Holy Spirit through the wisdom of the word of God the blessing of God doesn't become an idol where it owns us so The first blessing was the freedom from distraction that you singles have in Christ. And this enables you to have a focus. This enables you to focus in an undistracted fashion on your devotion to God. And I'll say a quick word of application. Your singleness is not a license to extend childhood until you're 30 playing computer games in your parents' basement shirking responsibilities and privileges given you by the Lord. That's a specific, uh, broadening out a little bit. Your singleness is not intended by God to be spent on selfish pursuit. That's why Paul says, look at verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. That's spoken to the men. At the end of verse 34, he speaks to the woman, and the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in holy and spirit. And what Paul is bringing out here is this undistracted devotion, which is a two-word phrase, even at the end of verse 35. And with this godly single woman, whether unmarried or a virgin, whether having been ne- never been married before as a virgin or unmarried, could be divorced. Perhaps she had an unbelieving spouse that deserted her, or perhaps she's a widow. When this godly woman, her intent is that she would be holy both in body and spirit, and that merely means in her whole person, the whole person. 
So, beloved, single man, single woman, understand this. In Christ as a single, you're not relegated to the league of non-usefulness in the kingdom of God. Rather, you have an advantage that even your godly married brothers and sisters don't have. You have the opportunity in a unique way for total single-minded devotion to the Lord. Now, we have a wonderful example of this. Again, I mentioned this last week, but here in 1 Corinthians 7, he addresses singles of all stripes, those who have never been married, those who have been widowed, and those who have been even divorced. In Paul's letter, his first letter to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, he gives instructions on widows and how the church is even to care for widows if she's over the age of 60 and she doesn't have a family that can take care of her. But he gives a qualification of a godly widow who is a widow indeed in 1 Timothy 5, verse 5, where Paul writes, Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone, watch this, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day, end quote. You see, Paul there describes a wonderful example for all singles, in this case of a widow who has this undistracted devotion and focus on the things of the Lord, day and night, praying without ceasing is this godly woman. Paul, back here in 1 Corinthians 7, he does give a contrast. In verse 33, he says, But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. And then that's for a man. He'll give similar words in a bit to the women. But understand this. Here in verse 33, in the beginning of verse 34, Paul is not describing something that is sinful, that is necessarily sinful. It could become sinful, but it is not necessarily sinful. It's a reality. In fact, we understand that for husbands to be pleasing to the Lord, their first priority at the horizontal earthly level is to please their wives. This is at the center of a husband pleasing the Lord is pleasing his wife in the Lord. And I'm looking forward to expanding on this next week in Ephesians 5:25 and forward. And we can say this, you cannot be faithful to the Lord if you're not faithful to your wife. And I'm not merely talking about adultery. I mean, if you're not loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So husbands, you please the Lord by pleasing your wife. And what Paul's saying here, though, is that that is a distracted devotion, even a right and appropriate distraction. And it's in the context of the blessing and the advantage the single has. Now, we understand that Paul is single. I mentioned this last week. In all the contexts that we encounter Paul in all of Scripture, he's single. He may have been single. He may have been a single virgin all his life. Or he could be widowed. widowed we don't know for sure. But one of the questions that I, I got was, well, and it's, it's a legitimate reasonable question since being single is so great to focus on ministry why most how come most pastors aren't single in fact a single pastor 
is a rare exception, especially in the context of one who has never been married before. Why is that? Well, maybe you've heard the illustration that when you think of your evangelism, you have two wings of your evangelism. One wing is your gospel proclamation. The other wing on the airplane of evangelism is your witness. In the same way, a pastor, an elder, preaching is one wing of his ministry, but example is the other wing. And being the example of a loving, godly husband and a father and children being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In fact, the first sine qua non criterion, the first requirement for a pastor or an elder is that he is devoted to his wife and he's a good manager of his own household. This is the first proving ground, the first testing ground. So understanding this, it would take away any erroneous or even heretical thinking about the required celibacy of priests or pastors. Well, back in verse 34, Paul continues the contrast, this time with a woman. He says, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And again, there is a distraction, even an appropriate, right, God-given distraction, but a distraction nonetheless. And the situation is that believers can get bent out of shape. Now, some of you married people, um, especially if you're maybe not yet married, if you're engaged, my beloved Margie and I, I remember when we were married before, well, actually before we got married, when we were engaged, we had the erroneous, uh, borderline heretical thinking, we were like, like, Lord, we want you to come, but can you let us get married first? You know, and, and we would repent. We knew that was wrong thinking. But the idea, I mean, it's good to have a high view of marriage. It's good to be excited about marriage. But to have that true thinking in your heart, that's a distorted, staying, polluted understanding of it. And that's what Paul is talking about here is when you have that distraction, even a God-given one, on the side of eternity, the flesh can distort it and make it what it ought not to be. Let me address another question. It's actually interesting. The next part here, these notes I have here. I actually had these notes in my sermon last week, but I skipped over them. But then Tom Gaudet asked me a very good question in fellowship we're having at the Eli household after the service. He said, would you have had a different perspective in terms of marrying again if your children had been younger? And the answer was, and I can only speculate, absolutely, if I had young children from a providential standpoint with a desire for my young children to have a mother in the household, I very likely would have had a different perspective. That's another, while I'm getting personal, that's even another area that I thank the Lord. The Lord gave my beloved Margie extra two years beyond the actuarial data and life expectancy when it was discovered that her breast cancer metastasized onto her spine. And those two extra years meant that my beloved children were 19, 16, and 14 when she went home to be with the Lord. They were all adults, skipping over the myth of adolescence, which I'll get to that when I get to Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. But the point is that 16, or excuse me, uh, 19, 16, and 14 were very different than if they had been 17, 14 as a young girl, and 12 for my youngest son. But in any event, 
back to the text. Verse 35, we finish up. So you got the point there. Yes, if my children were much younger, I most likely would have had a very different perspective on that. I trust God would have laid whatever would be right in my heart. Well, verse 34, excuse me, 35, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, and this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, it's interesting, the word, the Greek word translated as restraint, this is the only appearance of this word in the Bible. It was a word that meant a noose, a slipcord. It was used in hunting or catching or taking an animal or even a slave in captivity for restraining. Paul's point here is, listen, Paul's point is he's not writing a law. This is the word of God, but he's not writing a law. He's sharing a freedom. He's sharing and elaborating upon a blessing. That's why he finishes, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that's the phrase at the end. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Beloved, if you're single here this morning, you may be single and you've never been married before. This verse applies to you. You may be single here this morning and you may be widowed. This verse applies to you. You may be divorced here this morning. Perhaps you had a spouse that was an unrepentant serial adulterer. Perhaps you were deserted by your spouse. This verse applies to you. You may be here this morning divorced where even the divorce was a result of your sin. If you have a repentant heart now, this verse, this promise, this blessing, this gift applies to you. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, describing with illustration and imagery the problem of the loneliness of being alone. He said this, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. He describes the problem of loneliness of being alone so what does that mean for you as a single you are not alone if you're in Christ Christ is with you the Holy Spirit dwells within you and you have a manifold multiplication being part of the family of God you have a 10 million fold return with the universal family of God and you've got a hundred fold return of brothers and sisters in this family of God men and women that love you and protect you and guard you and come alongside you and encourage you that is the hope for a single Christian and you have an advantage as a single you may not have the gift of singleness for life but the question is what are you doing with the gift now and what is the world for all of us what does the world see when the world comes among us does the world see the same preoccupations does the world see the same discontentment the same dysfunctional marriages and dysfunctional families are we just whitewashed enough to escape the notice and pass the inspe inspection by the blind guides? Or 
does the world see something different? Does the world see something beautiful, something powerful? Godly marriages with husbands loving their wives the way Christ loved the church. Godly wives encouraging and helping their husbands. Godly singles, even ones who would love to be married, content in the Lord. And with the control so that their desire doesn't burn with sinful passion. Beloved, both singleness and marriage present us with unique challenges to our sanctification and unique opportunities to bless and glorify the Lord. Which is better, married or single, does not depend upon whether or not you're married or single. It does not depend on which gift you have. The question is, how do you respond to the gift? And beloved, faithfulness to Christ defines the value of life as a single or as a married. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. God, give us undivided hearts. Give us hearts fully given over to your worship, to your glory, lives totally devoted and dedicated to you, whether married or single. God, may we live and move and breathe in the framework of eternity. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for the godly couples, the marriages that are here. Thank you for the engagements that are forthcoming and the joy and the blessing. Thank you for the singles here. God, may your grace and mercy wash anew over the godly singles here, whether they have the gift of singleness, permanent or temporary. Bless them in all that they do for your glory and for their joy. And dear God, dear Lord Jesus, as we now approach a communion table, we thank you for the sacrifice you provided on our behalf, for the once-for-all work that you did. We praise you and thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth by observing what you commanded for us to do in the act of communion. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we come to the table. Amen.